Hey, Wormhole Creek. It's great to see all of you here today. I was actually out of town last Sunday visiting family, and when I got back, I heard that I missed a great service. If you were here, you know that last week was our student takeover, which means our middle school students and high school students were up here on the stage leading the worship service. I had the chance to listen to the podcast from last Sunday, and wow, those guys did a phenomenal job. During the teaching time, they showed us four characters in the Bible who all had a life-changing encounter with Jesus. And that was a perfect segue into today's message, because we're jumping back into our big series called The Gospel. The Gospel is a word that means good news. When we say good news, we're talking about Jesus. So this series is a journey through the life and ministry of Jesus in chronological order. Back in November, we left our story at a point where the ministry of Jesus is in full force. He's starting to gain a lot of attention because he's teaching with authority and he's working miracles. However, we've seen that not everyone has a positive response to Jesus. There are a lot of people who are very much drawn to him, but then you got this other group. You got people like the Jewish religious leaders. Religious leaders are not fans of Jesus. They don't like his popularity. They don't like his growing influence. They just flat out deny the possibility that he could be the Messiah. Basically, they refuse to put their faith in Jesus. You know, that word faith is very, very important. It's a powerful word with lots of implications. As you read through the Bible, it becomes very clear that when God relates to people, when he looks at you and he looks at me, what he wants to see is faith. Check out Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. That verse says, and without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So you can see that faith is a very big deal, right? If you don't have faith, you don't have any hope of pleasing God. Now, because this is so important, we should be very clear about the meaning of this word. Just a few verses earlier in the book of Hebrews, we see that faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. So in our context here, faith means believing in something that you have not seen. You're basing your life on something that hasn't quite been proven yet. You're depending on a promise that hasn't been fulfilled. Over the next few weeks, we're going to look at several encounters with Jesus where faith plays a significant role. We're going to see that when you have faith, you open the door for God's power to show up in your life. This morning, we're going to begin with a story of a man whose faith was so great, even Jesus was amazed. In fact, I'll just skip ahead and read you a verse from the end of this story. Luke chapter 7, verse 9. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. I don't know about you, but that verse makes me want to know who Jesus is talking about. Who is this guy? And what did he say that Jesus was so impressed with? Well, let's back up and get the whole story. If you brought a Bible with you, or if you have a Bible app, follow along with me in Luke chapter 7. 
can also read the passage up on the screen. So let's see what we can learn about this man. Luke 7, starting with verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There, a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and he has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with him. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That's why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go, and he goes, and that one come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd, following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. So that's the story. And it's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Jesus performs a long-distance miracle for a Roman soldier who has great faith. It's a cool story with a happy ending, but what can we take away here? How do we apply this story to our lives? Well, let's dig a little deeper. And first, let's look at the centurion himself. You may know that a centurion was an officer in the army of the Roman Empire. He was in charge of a hundred men, and that sort of makes sense, right? century is a hundred years, and a centurion leads a hundred men. Now, it's pretty obvious that this soldier is not a Jew. He may have been the kind of person they call a God-fearer. A God-fearer is a non-Jew or a Gentile who worshipped the God of Israel and respected the Jewish moral code. At the very least, though, we know that this centurion is very respectful used his influence and possibly his own money to help build the Jewish synagogue in Capernaum. That was a big reason why the religious leaders appreciated this guy. But the centurion has a serious problem, doesn't he? One of his servants is very, very ill. He's about to die. And you should know that in the original Greek here, the servant is described as a boy. This boy very likely would have become like a son to the centurion. So here we have this Roman soldier desperately searching for help. And remember, he could have looked for help in lots of different places. He could have sought out a doctor among the Jews or the Romans. He could have prayed to the Roman gods. But he doesn't do that. Somewhere along the way, this centurion has heard stories about Jesus. He believes those stories. Based on what he's heard, he has a conviction that Jesus has the power to heal this boy. Because of that conviction, the centurion sends representatives to go ask Jesus for help. So already, that is an act of faith. But it goes even further. When Jesus gets close to the house, the centurion sends a second message. He says, listen, Jesus, don't go to all this trouble. I know how authority works. When, when my superiors get an order, things happen. When I get an order, things happen. I believe that your authority is higher than anything I have ever seen. I believe that from wherever you are, you can give 
be one. My servant will be healed. That's what Jesus finds amazing. This centurion had never seen Jesus perform a miracle like this, but he has total confidence that he can do it. Remember, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Now, it's important to notice that this is one of only two times in the Bible that we see Jesus is amazed. Get that word, amazed. We have this example here in the faith of a Gentile. And then we have another example over in Mark 6, verse 6, where Jesus is amazed by a lack of faith. It's kind of a crazy story. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus goes back to his hometown, Nazareth. He starts preaching and teaching in the synagogue, but then all of a sudden, he gets this pushback from his old friends and relatives. They're like, come on now. We know Jesus. We know his mother. We know his brothers. We know his sisters. Surely this hometown boy can't think he's the Messiah. And listen to what Mark says about this. He says, Jesus could not do any miracles there, except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. You see that? That's the opposite of what happened with that centurion, right? The centurion had great faith, and then Jesus responded by healing his servant. Here, the people of Nazareth have a complete lack of faith. So it says, Jesus could not do any miracles there. Now, what is up with that? Is Mark really saying that Jesus couldn't do miracles in Nazareth? Is it like this village was his kryptonite? He lost his power there? We have to be careful here because it's not that Jesus lost his power. It's that the people didn't come to him for help. As we read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see that it's very common for Jesus to heal people in response to their faith. But here in Nazareth, there's nothing for him to respond to. Instead of working miracles, Jesus stands there in Nazareth, shocked and amazed. Now, if these people had been paying attention to Scripture and to Jesus himself, if they had opened their hearts to the possibility that he actually was the Messiah, they would have seen him. So it's a paradox. On the one hand, we have this group of Jews with little to no faith. And on the other hand, we have a Gentile who demonstrates an amazing amount of faith. These two stories show us that pleasing God is not about being born into a certain family or having a certain ethnicity. Pleasing God is about having a genuine faith. But we can't stop there. God isn't just looking for some generic faith. He's not like, well, just believe in whatever you want, and as long as you're sincere, that'll be just fine. No, that's not how it works. The reality is, God is specifically looking for each of us in Jesus. Now, I probably don't need to tell you that this idea is not very popular in our world today. The conventional wisdom says, sure, you can believe in whatever you want, as long as you don't tell me what I should believe. In fact, a lot of people would say things like this. They'll say, there is no way for anyone to be sure that you're right about God. You can't be sure about Jesus. You can't be sure that God even exists. So no, I'm not willing to take that leap of faith. There's a huge misconception here. It doesn't matter who 
are. Everyone has faith in someone or something. A preacher named Tim Keller has some helpful things to say about this. Keller says, you can never disbelieve in God without believing in that moment just as deeply and just as fundamentally in something else. And here's what he means by that. What if you are that person who says, nobody can know about God, nobody can be sure about Jesus? How can you be so sure about that? How can you be absolutely certain that nobody can be right about God? The only way to come to that conclusion is by faith. It takes a leap of faith to believe that God is unknowable, or that all religions are the same, or that it doesn't matter what you believe. All of those convictions are statements of faith. And this is serious, because you're basing your whole eternal destiny on that. So, do you have good reasons to support those convictions? Over 20 years ago, I read a book that does a great job of explaining what we're talking about here. The book is called A Severe Mercy, and it was written by a man named Sheldon Bannon. I want you to hear a quote from this book, but I also want you to visualize this quote. That's why I have these wooden boxes next to me here. Some of you have been sitting there all distracted. What's he going to do with those boxes? Well, the time has come. I'm going to jump up here and explain this. I have to get my balance. Um, this is either going to be a good illustration or you're going to see me fall. Either way, it's a win-win for you. <laughs> so here's the situation. I'm, I'm standing on this center platform. I've got one box in front of me and two boxes behind me. And this platform in the center it represents what we could call a point of decision. It's a temporary location. I'm here for just a moment. It's the moment where I decide where I'm going to stand. So now I can tell you about Sheldon Van Arken. At some point in his life, Van Arken was in a place just like this. Point of decision. He was trying to decide if he really believed in Jesus. Now, he had been searching, he was looking for answers, and he found some good reasons to believe, but he wasn't quite ready to commit. He says, he says, there is a gap between the probable and the proved. Just like the gap that's in front of me now. And he says, how was I to cross it? If I were to stake my whole life on the risen Christ, I wanted proof. I wanted certainty. I wanted letters of fire across the sky. I got none of these. And I continued to hang about on the edge of the gap. It was a question of whether I was to accept him or reject him. Some of us have been in this same place, right? We want absolute proof that Jesus is for real. We want an evidence that takes us all the way there, and we didn't find it. But Bianchi isn't done yet. He made an important discovery. Listen to this. He said, but there was a gap behind me as well. Perhaps the leap to acceptance was a horrifying gamble, but what of the leap to rejection? There might be no certainty that Christ was God, God, there was no certainty that he was not. This was not to be born. I could not reject Jesus. There was only one thing to do once I had seen the gap behind me. I turned away from it and flung myself over the gap to Jesus. So, Sheldon Manaka made this decision to put his faith in Jesus. He took that leap. 
And his observation is pretty insightful, isn't it? All of us are in the same situation. We don't get to decide whether or not to have faith. Because everyone has faith in someone or something. The question is, in what or in whom are you placing faith? What if you decide to choose disbelief? You don't believe in Jesus and you make your way back here to this box. Well, as soon as you do that, you are immediately placing your belief in something else. It could be a belief in a different religion, or a belief in science, or a belief that nothing really matters, nothing is really real. The point is, when you're standing on this box, you're still making a statement of faith. But what if you don't want to stand here? What if you're like, I, I don't want to choose disbelief, but, you know, I'm not sure I can choose belief either. On some days, I think, yeah, I could make that leap, but on other days, I'm not sure. Relate to that, you may want to jump over to a story in Mark chapter 9. In that chapter, there's a father, and his son is possessed by an evil spirit. And the father brings his son to Jesus and he says, If you can do anything, please take pity on us and help us. And Jesus is like, If I can do anything, he looks at his father's puny faith, and this time, He's not amazed. But then look at what happens next. Jesus tells the man, everything is possible for one who believes. And immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. It's really interesting. You hear that? The father says, I want to believe, and I do believe, sort of. Would you please help me overcome my doubts? Right? In Mark 9, we learn that weak faith in the right thing is far better than strong faith in the wrong thing. I heard a great illustration about this, again from Tim Keller. He said, picture two mountain climbers walking along a peak on the top of a mountain. And the path is very close to a cliff. And then suddenly the ground gives way and they both fall down to a precarious ledge. And they look to the left and they see a rock. And maybe they could jump to that rock and find their way to safety. But then they look to their right and they see a different rock. And maybe that rock would lead them, lead them to safety. And the first climber says, I am 100% sure that we should jump to this rock on the left. And then the second climber says, I'm not really sure. I don't know which way is best for sure, but I have a hunch that this rock to the right is the better path. So the first climber says, whatever, dude, and he jumps to the rock on the left, and the rock collapses, and he falls to his death. The second climber sees that, takes a big good and then he jumps over to the rock on the right, stands firm, and then he's able to hike out. You see the connection, don't you? The strength of your faith is not the most important thing. The object of your faith is what matters. You've got to choose the right rock. So let's say you've made this leap. Let's say you've crossed that gap and you've decided to believe in Jesus. Does that mean you now have what the Bible calls faith? No, not quite yet. That 
first leap is very important, but you're not done. The decision to believe is about the head. It's an act of the mind. It's a judgment based on the evidence that you've been given. But the Bible is very clear that mere belief does not qualify as faith. Later in the New Testament, the book of James gives us a bit of a wake-up call. James writes, you say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. So, belief alone gets you right up to the level of demons. That's not where we want to be, is it? So what is the kind of faith that pleases God? What is the kind of faith that Jesus would call amazing? Well, here's the answer. With gospel-based faith, the, the faith that opens the door for God's power to show up in your life, two phases. In phase one, you transfer your belief over to Jesus. In phase two, you transfer your trust over to Jesus. And at that point, your faith is not just an academic exercise. It's not just deciding to believe in the truth of Jesus. It's a personal surrender to the implications of that truth. Let's look back in these boxes for a second. I talked about that first point of decision where you stand and look at this gap and then you take belief and decide to believe in Jesus. Well, there is a time when you have to go back and this time you're at the point of decision trying to decide if you're going to put your trust in Jesus. And it's, a, a similar, it's a similar situation. You have, to, you have to say, okay, Jesus, I'm going to put my life in your hands. I'm going to let you call the shot. I'm giving you total control of everything from this point on. Just like that first time, you can only stand at that point of decision for a moment. You either trust in Jesus or you don't. And if you choose this position of distrust, that means you are trusting in something else or someone else. A lot of times, standing back there is about trusting in yourself. You're saying, it's okay, Jesus. I'm going to handle my own life. I'm going to do this without you. One of the toughest parts of faith is that it requires humility. A trusting faith means that you lay down your pride. You admit that you're not strong enough or smart enough or good enough on your own. A trusting faith means total dependence on Jesus. I didn't point this out earlier. But the centurion actually had this trusting kind of faith. I don't know if you noticed, but uh, there was a big difference between the centurion and the religious leaders. Did you catch it? That group of elders went to Jesus, and they asked him to come and heal the servant. And what did they say? They said, this man deserves to have you do this. He's earned the right to get a miracle. God and the Jewish people. He helped build their synagogue. So yeah, he deserves to get a miracle from Jesus. And that shows you the paradigm they're working on. It's the kind of relationship where you work to earn God's approval. You try to be good enough to receive his rewards and his blessings. These Jewish leaders are not ready to put their trust in Jesus because they haven't yet learned that they can't trust in themselves. They're not ready for that kind of humility. Then there's the centurion. What 
What an amazing contrast. When, when Jesus was approaching the house, what did the centurion say? He said, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. He knew what the elders did not know. He didn't deserve a miracle from Jesus. His good works didn't earn him anything. The centurion did not depend on his own goodness to get a blessing from God. He simply threw himself at the mercy of Jesus. And that, my friends, is what it means to have a life-changing relationship with Jesus. You realize you don't deserve anything. And then you throw yourself at his mercy. You trust in him. You depend on him. That's the message that Paul communicates in Ephesians chapter 2. I know I've read these verses here many, many times, but it's so important for us to understand. Paul says, for it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. It's not by works, so that no one can boast. So, how does anyone get to God? How can anyone have this gift of forgiveness and salvation and eternal life? Well, it's a gift, right? It's not by works, we can't earn it. But does that gift come by grace or by faith? Well, what does the verse say here? You are saved by grace through faith. We need to understand the difference between those two things. Grace is God's part. God has chosen to show us this favor despite the fact that we don't deserve it. We deserve punishment. But Jesus took our punishment when he went to the cross. Through his sacrifice, God offers us this gift of a restored relationship with him. So that's grace. That's God's part. But we have an important role to play as well. Faith is our part. Faith is how we receive that grace. If we choose disbelief and distrust in Jesus, then we reject that gift of grace. But if we put our faith in him, both head and heart, both belief and trust, then we open the door for God's power to go to work. Now, that is what happens when you first begin a relationship with Jesus. Putting your faith in Jesus means you admit that you're a sinner. You believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sins. You declare that He is your Lord, your Master, and your Savior. You repent, which means you turn away from your sin. You're baptized in Christ and you're raised up to live a new life. So putting your faith in Jesus is something that happens at the beginning of your relationship with Him. That's not the end of it. You have to keep making that decision to trust in Jesus every day for the rest of your life. Over the next few weeks, we're going to learn what it means to keep trusting in Jesus throughout our lives. And we're going to confront the very real attacks how do you keep the faith when you're struggling with doubt? How do you keep the faith when it seems like God is not answering your prayers? See, the truth is, there comes a moment for every Christian when your doubt or your fear or your selfishness tries to take over. Maybe you made a clear decision to stand on this box here in the front, but then all of a sudden you find yourself pulled and tempted. You're trying to straddle between two different boxes, between belief and disbelief, or between trust and distrust. I'll tell you right now, this is no place that you want to be. I should jump down for myself. A straddling gap doesn't work. 
himself said, no one can serve two masters. Eventually, you have to choose which box you're going to stand on. You have to choose where you will place your belief and your trust. Thank God. His grace does not depend on the strength of our faith. It's about the object of our faith. So as I come to a close today, I want you to ask two questions. First, where is my belief? Have I made the clear decision to take the leap, to cross the gap and believe in Jesus? If you are at this point of decision, what is holding you back? If you need someone to walk beside you as you search for answers, we'd be glad to do that. We'd be glad to help you seek after Jesus and learn that He is worthy of your belief. If you've already made that decision, the second question to ask is, where is my trust? Really? What am I trusting in? Who am I trusting? Do I say I believe in Jesus, but then I really haven't given him control of my life? Or am I straddling between these two boxes, kind of halfway trusting in Jesus while at the same time I'm also holding on to my own agenda, my own security, my own selfishness? However, you answer those two questions. I challenge you to follow up this week by praying a simple prayer. Prayer to just say, Jesus, I believe in you. Jesus, I trust in you. Lead me today. And I will follow. And then spend at least five minutes in Scripture. Look for something that Jesus is telling you to do. And then finally, at the end of the day, look back and think about what happened. How did he lead you? You know, every single day, Jesus will lead you to do something that stretches you. He'll lead you to change your attitude, or change your behavior, or love him better, or love others better. So when you look back on the day, identify how you were led by Jesus. And then ask yourself if you actually took the step to follow him. Because if you follow his leading, even though they haven't been fulfilled yet. Lord, we want to.